several years back. But I've known him from Alabama days for a long time back. He's a great young man. He'll do a great job speaking for us on crossed, cross-centered teams. He comes from a cross-centered family, and I'm sure that he and Michelle will rear their children as cross, with, with the cross in mind as well. If you'll bow with me for a quick word of prayer, we'll get started, and I'll turn it over to Brother Joseph. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, the beauty of it, for the opportunity to be at focal point and to sit at the feet of these men who have studied themselves and prepared themselves for these lessons. Although we're thankful for Joseph, we're thankful for his life, for the submission and obedience and humility that he's had toward you and your word and your son. Father, we thank you for his great example of, of living and walking in the light and living a Christian life. Father, as he speaks to us about centering our lives in Christ and on the cross, we pray you would bless him, give him the strength to speak as he ought, and may we listen in view of eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Afternoon. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity, and I appreciate the kind word from Brother David. I, I, um, I have known him for quite some time. The first thing that I remember of my memories of him are at Indian Creek Youth Camp, and him being the, the you know, somehow crazy guy that had the old Miss sheets and the old Miss towels and the old Miss everything that you know. If you don't know, he has a problem related to old Miss. <laughs> uh, in the age of coronavirus, just a minute ago, I picked up somebody else's water bottle and drank it. So if you see any issues in the middle of my lesson, I start going cross-eyed or anything, please tell me. Otherwise, we are, uh, we're going to truck right along and start talking about a cross-centered life. Um, I can't help but notice I'm supposed to talk about cross-centered teens, and some of y'all are lying. Um, I know that Brother Charlie is older than 25. Much less teen. So, uh, I it, teach teens. So. You teach teens. All right. Well, we'll give a few. We'll, we'll offer a few uh, passes this time. It, it, uh, it kind of works out. Consequently, I, I was going to start out by telling y'all that though my topic is cross-centered teens, I really, I, I intend to really just talk about what it means to be cross-centered in general. Uh, because if you are a teen or if you're a young person this afternoon, I hope y'all understand that Christianity and discipleship and being cross-centered, it really doesn't change that significantly when you turn 19 and 20 and 21 and 25. Yes, there are adjustments and there are things that do change. But the fact that you are cross-centered and the very heart of it, it shouldn't change that much. And if you're prepared to be cross-centered from when you're this age, you're going to be a whole lot better off then, if that makes sense. Give me just a second. When I got up here, I turned my whole computer off. <laughs> it wants to be contrary. This is the worst nightmare of anybody that ever uses technology, as you well know. I'll get you to go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2 anyway while I'm working on this.
bad when it's so bad you don't even know where to turn to fix what you're trying to do. Well, we'll be all right. We will figure it out one way or another. All right, anyway. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Context that you are likely at least familiar with somewhat, if not intimately. The context, Jesus talking about what it means, or pardon me, Paul talking about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be, in a sense, cross-centered, if you will, Christ-centered. He says in verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the point of the cross. We want to talk about what it means to be cross-centered. I, I want us to understand that ultimately it, it's, it's Christ-centered at the heart. That, that might seem strange or might seem obvious. When I say being cross-centered is being Christ-centered. But the idea of being cross-centered or being sacrificially centered, because I think that's kind of what we mean when we say cross-centered, being sacrificial could mean a lot of different things. The idea of wanting to do for others. And Jacob talks, Jacob Rutledge talked a little bit a while ago about this, the idea of being socially just. And there's an idea that we should be just towards others. We could, should be kind. We should sacrifice for others. You go to the workplace and there's going to be some ideas and some principles that we should sacrifice for those around us. Especially, you know, customers and things. But when we talk about truly being cross-centered in this context, in the context of, of our lesson today... We mean like Jesus was sacrificial, not just sacrificial in a general sense. Not just putting others first in a general sense. And the way Paul states it is let this mind or let this attitude or let this be in you like it was in him. And he walks through the idea of making himself like man. Have you ever thought about the concept of Jesus starts not with him being willing to give up things on earth, but it starts with the idea of he was willing to give up heaven first. So that he could come and become a creation. And then as a creation, he gave up things. And as a creation, he sacrificed himself and he died. As we think about that, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew 14, we read one of the more common accounts that we go through about the feeding of the 5,000. In verses 13 following, about verse 21. After the feeding of the 5,000, what happens? It's these great events in the life of Jesus where Jesus does these amazing and huge miracles, often what we see immediately after them in the accounts like Matthew and Luke, are that there will be this kind of lull, and, and a good kind of lull, not like a nobody knows what to do kind of lull. Jesus will do some amazing miracles, some amazing thing, and then he will walk away and he will send his disciples away. And in this particular instance, we see it in verse 22 that immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, the Sea of Galilee, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. 
So after this event where he feeds 5,000 plus individuals, he sends the disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee. He goes to pray. And we're going to see now they're going to come back together. Now, to set the understanding and reminder of this context, these disciples, at least probably half of them, were very familiar with the sea. They were very familiar with being in boats, being in boats during storms, which we're going to see a storm here. Familiar with this kind of danger that's going to come up. They were also, these disciples were individuals who had just seen, as we mentioned, Jesus do a miraculous action of power by feeding 5,000 people, along with a whole lot of other things they'd already seen. A whole lot of miracles like that. Now, let's keep reading in verse 24 and continue. The boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It's I. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And so he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. We're going to use this context and some other ideas from Peter's life to talk about being cross-centered and ultimately Christ-centered and how Peter sometimes achieved that and sometimes failed at that. Now... Probably, or at least some of us who have heard a lesson somewhat like this, looking at Jesus and Peter's relationship in this story and the idea of keeping your eyes on Jesus. And that's going to be, in a sense, at the heart of this. But we're going to talk a little bit more about what being Christ-centered and cross-centered means and what it doesn't mean from this context. So let's step through, at least to start out with, three things that being Christ-centered and cross-centered does not mean from what happened in Peter's account here. The first is that being Christ-centered and cross-centered does not mean is very different than being boat-centered. And I don't mean that you can't like boats. I don't know if anybody here likes boats. I have a boat and I really like boats. The idea here is that Peter got out of the boat and had faith in something other than the boat when he was in the middle of the sea. Think about Peter's, Peter's faith in this moment. Because it's going to go badly. We know how it goes badly. But think about his faith in the moment that he goes out there. And I have always thought that this is one of the strangest things that Peter does. And any time we start trying to delve in to try to figure Peter out, it kind of becomes a, a head-scratcher. Because we see way too much humanity, right? We see too, way too many doubts and confusing things and Peter contradicting himself and Jesus. But here, he does one of the strangest things that I think he ever does. And that's he looks out on the water and sees what he thinks he's pretty sure is Jesus. He verifies that it is Jesus. And then he wants to walk out in the middle of the water. I don't know if there is a single person in this room that would have thought of that. How many of you think you would have thought of that? There's Jesus walking in the water in the middle of the storm. I'm in a boat with the rest of the disciples. There's Jesus. First thought, great, Jesus is here. My second thought, great, Jesus can come get in the boat with us. Not that Jesus isn't okay and safe out there, but I want Jesus to come into my boat, right? We might even, you know, say that in a very spiritual way. We, we want Jesus in our boat, right? We want Jesus to come to where we are. But Peter's first reaction is, 
I'm going to go out there with him. Now, we'll talk later about maybe more of the implications of why he did that. But just from a very surface perspective, at least, I cannot imagine why that was Peter's first reaction. It's strange. That's the only word I know for it. Strange. But he steps out. And as he steps out, it is a moment of absolute triumph for Peter. Triumph in his faith in Christ. Triumph in his faith over what's going on around him, the storms. His willingness to do things that he's never done, things that he might even think have never been done because Jesus is in his presence. And so he gets out of the boat. Peter's faith and Peter's relationship with what was going on here, we can say his Christianity if you want to, and there are subtleties, his discipleship, was not centered on the safety of the boat that he was in. It was centered on Christ and Christ being in his presence. I want to think about something for a minute, though. How many of you ever heard of or read or or listened to a preacher who said something? God calls us to get out of the boat from this passage. I've heard it, and especially in my studies for this, I found a lot of those lessons and a lot of those writings that we say, Jesus calls us to get out of the boat, just like Peter got out of the boat. Where in this passage did Jesus tell Peter to get out of the boat? Where did Jesus come out on the water and say, Disciples, I'm here. Peter, come on out here. It's not there. Jesus doesn't call Peter out of the boat. He doesn't ask him to step out onto the water and walk on water with him. He just presents himself. And Peter is the one who volunteers it. Now, we'll get into the application here in a minute. But Peter did not have to get out of the boat to be faithful to Jesus. Peter did not have to get out of the boat to have faith in Jesus. But he did. Now, in our application, when we think about our our faith in Christ and our Christ and cross-centeredness... We need to understand that our faith has to be in Jesus, not in our boat and our comfort zone in the place that we are at. That doesn't necessarily mean our comfort zones in the place we are is wrong. That we have to step out of it. Now, looking at this idea, I I, kind of hinted on it there, but in the application of this, Peter's boat, that all the rest of the disciples were in, was where he was comfortable. It was the place that he knew. The place that he had spent plenty of hours going through storms like this. Plenty of hours going across the Sea of Galilee. He understood it. How many times had Peter walked on the water before this moment? To our knowledge, none. He went from the known, the comfortable, out into the unknown. And the only way that he was able to do this was because he had faith and was centered on Christ, not had faith and was centered on the thing that he knew and he was comfortable with. How does that apply to us? What are our boats? What is our boat? And I I take maybe a leap of uh, what I'm thinking here, that most of us in this room are either Christians or have come up in Christ-centered homes. So we understand most of this. We are, are, if you want to put it this way, we are church-going people of faith. Is that fair? An assumption. And if you're not, I'm sorry if this doesn't quite apply to you, but I think it maybe will still. If we are people of faith... We still have places that are our boat. If we are people who are Christians, who go to church, who are part of the church, who have faith, we still have our boat. Maybe it's our church family. Maybe it's the family that is also Christian that we have grown up in, that we're in. Maybe, I assume, if you are a teenager here, if you are a young person, you're probably, the likelihood is you're probably homeschooled. I was homeschooled, so that's not, I'm not, it's not a dig. Maybe your boat and the thing that you're comfortable with 
is your education and the homeschooling that you, you, area and the, and the things that you've grown up with. Maybe it's your friend group and the things that you're used to. Maybe it's the form of ministry or reaching out to others that you're used to. All right, this is going to sound like a silly question. Is the church wrong? Is it wrong for you to feel comfortable in the church? All right, hang on. Let me ask that a question again the same way. Is it wrong for you to feel comfortable in the church? I didn't think that was a trick question. Is it wrong to feel comfortable in the church? No, God gave us the church. It's where we're supposed to feel comfortable. It's where we're supposed to have a a level of peace and comfort, lack of anxiety. Is it wrong to feel comfortable in our families? Is it wrong to feel comfortable with your mode of education, if it's homeschooling, whatever that may be? Is it wrong to feel comfortable in your friend group? No, as long as they're not doing things they ought not be doing. No. What our problem is, is when we begin to put our faith And the center of our Christianity on those things. If your faith is centered on your family and not on Christ, what's going to happen when you step out of your family unit and you go to school or you step out of your family unit and you begin to go into the world to work? And you're separated from what that thing is that you have faith in. It's not Jesus. Your faith's going to crumble and you're going to realize it wasn't Jesus. If your church family that you're in, especially young people, if your church family that you're in is where your faith is, your faith is set on the leaders that are in your church, the elders, the deacons, the preachers, the ministers, the older people who have mentored you and been with you, and that is what your faith is grounded and rooted in, when you leave that to go to college or you leave that to to attend another church, what's going to happen to your faith? You're going to realize it's not centered on Jesus and it was centered on people. See, for Peter, he was able to step out of the boat, not because he knew that was the thing that he had to do to be faithful to Christ. He was able to step out of the boat because his faith was not centered on... He knew he was safe in the middle of that storm because of the boat. He knew he was safe in the middle of that storm because of Christ. And whether he was in a boat or he was out in the middle of the waters, swimming or walking, he had faith that he'd be fine. That's where the story goes great. Now we're going to see where the story takes a wrong turn. Because what happens to Peter? He's out. He has this moment of triumph. He's walking towards Jesus, presumably. He's he's making progress here. And then what happens? Somebody tell me. What happens? He starts to sink. Man, I know that it has been a while since lunch. I know y'all have already gotten your nap at some point during one of these lessons. So wake up. Come on. He begins to sink. And he begins to sink because he looks out at the winds and the waves. Presumably, and this is the application oftentimes we say, he took his eyes off Jesus. Now, let me just kind of postulate and hypothesize here. I'm pretty sure if he just took his eyes off of Jesus and looked at the storm around him, and he saw the storm around him in awe as something that God had made, and he thought, this is amazing, I'm able to do this, and he just kept walking towards Jesus, I'm pretty sure it would have been fine. I don't think he would have sank. But there's a word in there if you look back at it. Somebody look at verse 29. He said, come, and when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go with Jesus. Now, verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, what was the problem? He's afraid. Hey, now y'all are talking. That's good. Good, thank you. Makes me feel more comfortable. He was afraid. He got scared. The problem wasn't he saw what was around him. The problem was he became scared of what was around him. We talked before about how being cross-centered and Christ-centered is not being boat-centered, a.k.a. not being centered and focused on what we're comfortable with. But being cross-centered and Christ-centered is also not storm-centered. 
It's not being focused on what's around you. And I know these aren't revolutionary thoughts, but the problem is not saying this. It's the idea of putting it into our actual lives and realizing it. I'm going to ask the young people here, the teenagers and those who are here that I'm actually supposed to be talking about, talking to. How many older people around you have you seen in the last year and a half that have been absolutely consumed by the problems going on in the world? How many older people have you seen that, that are wrapped up and they're worried about, or they were worried about a presidential election? They were worried and concerned and wrapped up and focused on the issues of coronavirus, whether that was on one side worrying that coronavirus was going to kill us all or on the other side worrying about that because of coronavirus we're going to lose all our liberties. Do you know anybody like that? And I'm, I'm not trying to talk bad about your parents if that's the case. I, I'm Be respectful here. But if you've seen older people, I'm pretty sure we all have, older people inside the church or outside of the church that get wrapped up with those things, you realize that being wrapped up and consumed with those things and not having a faith that Christ is in control of it all is not Christ-centered, it's storm-centered. Peter was fine in the middle of the storm, recognizing the storm, seeing and knowing that the storm was there as long as he knew that Christ was in the storm and that was what was keeping him safe. See, we know that he wasn't boat-centered because he stepped out of it. And at least for a minute, he wasn't storm-centered. But then he got afraid. Do you think, along those lines, do you think when he stepped out of the boat, he didn't realize there was a storm there? You think when he took that first step, he thought it was placid waters? And actually, just about an inch and a half under there, there's a sandbar, and I'm going to be fine. So that's, that's all that the issue is. Peter understood what was around him. Again, he, he's an experienced sailor. He, he's a fisherman. He knows what the situation is. But all of a sudden, in the middle of the storm, his focus went away from Christ, and his focus was on the problem that he was in the middle of. I asked the question a minute ago, what's our boat? What are, what are our storms? I mentioned a couple of those as well. But what are your storms? Because all of us have different storms. All of us have different specifics of the things that we deal with and we struggle with. Maybe it's your home life and the situation you're in. Maybe your parents are on the edge of or have already gone through a divorce. Maybe it's a situation with your physical health, whether that's mental or other parts of your body. Your physical health is causing you anxieties and worries. Maybe it's a situation with your friends. Maybe you've had to move or you're going to have to move and you're worried and it's the storms of life. Maybe you're worried about the things we mentioned. Maybe you're worried about what coronavirus means. Maybe you're worried about the politics of our country. It's okay to know that those things exist. It's okay to notice that there's problems. It's not okay to be centered on those things and to be focused solely on those things without recognizing that, yeah, those exist, But with Christ, I'm going to be okay in the middle of them. With Christ, we're going to be fine. The third thing I want us to think about is that being cross-centered and being Christ-centered, it not only means that we're not boat-centered, it doesn't just mean that we're not storm-centered, but it also means, and maybe this is the hardest, we're not self-centered. We're not centered on ourselves. Now, this is another issue that Peter had, and maybe we don't see it as much in this story. Peter had those other two issues, maybe, that he, he dealt with there. But Peter had moments when he was self-centered. Just think about a couple. There's, a, there's an account where Jesus meets Peter and Andrew and they're in a boat and they're fishing. Do you remember the time that they're fishing all night long and they don't catch anything? And Peter, pardon me, Jesus comes to him and says, you know, have you caught anything? And I always think that that's just the funniest thing because if, you're, if you've ever been fishing, what's the first thing you say to another fisherman? 
Got anything? That's the, I mean, that's the first question. I don't know why we do it. It's just, what's that? What are you catching? Are you catching? And where did you catch it? And I know, I understand the where do you catch it thing because that one's the, I'm going to steal your spot. But Jesus' first question, I don't think he's too concerned about catching some fish, but he's trying to draw something out of Peter. And he says, have you caught anything? No, no, we haven't caught anything all night long. And sometimes the way we tell the story, I'm not sure is necessarily accurate to the context. Because in my mind, at least, what I picture is Peter says, well, we've been fishing all night. And I think of an anchored boat sitting in one spot, and they've been throwing a, a net on one side of the boat the whole night. And Jesus says, well, you need to try on the other side of the boat. Is that usually how boats and fishermen, I mean, you all know how fishermen work. Have you ever known a fisherman that will go and take his boat and anchor it in one spot and start casting under the same tree? And he does that for eight hours, and he doesn't catch anything, and he keeps fishing in that same spot. And he just, I know there's fish there. And he just keeps fishing, and eight hours later he says, well, the fish aren't biting, and he goes home. Yeah, you might have known some people like that, but I'm pretty sure they didn't ever bring any fish home because that's not how fishing works. You fish somewhere for 30 minutes and it doesn't work. You go somewhere else. You throw your net somewhere else. You throw your net somewhere else. And, and Jesus comes to Peter, and when you realize that, Jesus comes to Peter and asks what Peter probably thought was a really dumb question or, or, or suggests something that probably Peter thought was really dumb. Throw your net on the other side. If they've been fishing all over the place and, and they've been fishing off of this one side of the boat, but they've been fishing all over the place, they've probably already thrown their nets where the other side of the boat is. Uh, Jesus is not telling Peter your location is wrong. <laughs> you, you didn't throw the net in the right place. He's telling Peter, try one more time. Throw your net over on the other side. And Peter's response to that is, well, Jesus, I don't think that's going to work. Peter says, just do it. <laughs> I mean, Jesus says, just do it. And of course... He throws it over, and what happens? So laden with fish, they have to get another boat because they can't even bring it in. Another account, Jesus, and this, this kind of happens in different ways multiple times, but Jesus begins to talk about self-sacrifice and, and being willing to be his disciple. And he begins to talk about that he's going to have to go to the cross and die. Jesus talks about this, this sacrifice is going to happen, and the cross, and the leaders that are going to, to be there to take him. Anybody remember what Peter says? I mean, he, he doesn't toe a line here. He just goes fully obstinate, full, fully in what he wants to say. Peter says, that is not going to happen. Jesus, you will never, that's the language, you will never go to the cross. That's what Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And he rebukes him pretty sternly. But Jesus gave Peter what his plan was. He told Peter the thing that was going to happen... And I'd like to think that most of us, at least in our imagination, if Jesus were to stand in front of us and tell us, this is what's going to happen, how would we respond? Yes, sir. I understand. I don't like that, but okay. Peter just flat out argued with him. He said, no, that's not going to happen. We see that play out in reality a little bit later. Even though Jesus rebukes him, what happens when they come to take Jesus out of the garden and get somebody? What does Peter do? He's got a sword, chops off Malchus's ear. Jesus has to say, stop. You know, in Jesus' head and in the, the, between the lines, you can almost say, haven't we been through this? I told you this is what's going to happen. Now, now Peter gets through that. Peter goes through the denial in the, in the outskirts of the, the trial of Jesus. He sees Jesus' death. He sees Jesus' burial. He sees Jesus' resurrection. He comes back, and they go through this process of forgiveness, and will you feed my sheep? Yes, I'll feed your sheep. And then Jesus ascends to heaven, and we see Peter become a great person of faith, this journey of faith. And he becomes this apostle who, in the book of Acts, he's going out and he's teaching and he's preaching, he's doing all these things. And then in the book of Galatians, 
we see what seems like old school Peter, not Peter of faith, but Peter doesn't like the plan of God again. He doesn't like the fact that Gentiles are allowed to come, uncircumcised non-Jews are able to come in and be part of the church. And, and so he's not, it, this sounds real high school, doesn't it? He doesn't want to sit with them. Because they're different and they're not real Jewish Christians and they're, they're Christians, that's fine. They can be a part, but I don't want to have anything to do with them. because They're different than me. And Paul has to, as it's, Scripture states, withstand him to the face. He gets in his face and says, come on, Peter. That's not what God's plan is. What do all of those things have in common? Every one of those instances, Peter had an idea of the way things were supposed to go. Peter thought he knew the best way. He thought, well, no, I've been fishing all night. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. He thought, Jesus, you're the Savior. You're this person. You're this great teacher. You're my, I'm your disciple. You're not going to the cross to die. And then he really backed that up with a sword. Peter thought, okay, Gentiles can come into the church. But he also thought, but that's not the way God always intended it. I don't think so. I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to kind of shun them. And every single time he had to be corrected to say, it's not about what you think it is. It's God's way. It's not your plan. It's God's plan. And even after the cross, Peter still had to be reminded that being Christ-centered and cross-centered did not mean self-centered. All right. I'm pretty sure, all that being said, I don't think there's a single one of us that would have stood before this lesson and said, I think being cross-centered is being focused on the problems. I don't think any of y'all would have said that. I don't think any of y'all would have said being cross-centered and Christ-centered means being focused on what I'm comfortable with. I really don't. I know everybody in this room has at least had some exposures to, to gospel preaching and teaching. You know, that's not true. I don't think there's any of you that would have said, I think being Christ-centered and cross-centered means being self-centered and focused on me. But I know that we as Christians struggle with all three of those concepts in reality. It is one thing to say it. It is one other whole entire thing to live that. Y'all know that. Y'all know that that's the case, as is with all parts of Christianity. I want you to go back to that question or that thing that we talked about a little while ago. Why did Peter get out of the boat? Silly, it's strange, I don't understand it. I think Peter got out of the boat, and I think there's, in the text, there's reason to believe this. I think Peter got out of the boat because he wanted to be where Jesus was, and he wanted to do what Jesus was doing. Jesus was out on the water. Jesus was walking on that water. And Peter, sure, Peter would have loved, I'm sure, to have Jesus in the boat. And I had other times when Jesus was in the boat and they asked him to calm the winds and the waves and all these things. But Peter saw him out there and he wanted to be where Jesus was and what, doing what Jesus was doing. Boiled down to its very core, isn't that what being Christ-centered and cross-centered is all about? I want to be where Jesus is and I want to be doing what Jesus is doing. Isn't that what all the discipleship is? And we've gotten lost in our modern society and, and modern Christianity. I mean all of it, all across. I mean our, our churches, the religious world as a whole, got lost in being a Christian is I, I have heard about Jesus and I like the things that Jesus teaches. I'm going to memorize some of those things. And I'm going to try to live some of the things that Jesus said. But we don't look at it as a, as a game of imitation. I don't mean game in a flippant sense. I mean we don't look at it as our goal is to imitate and be like we look at what we started with in Philippians chapter 2. He doesn't start with, learn about the way Jesus thought. <laughs> he says, let the way Jesus thought be in you. Let this mind be in you. 
We read throughout the New Testament, pardon me, throughout the New Testament, this idea of imitating him. Paul said multiple times, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Everything boils down to being like him. That means wanting to be where he is and wanting to do what he did. Now, as people who have studied and read a little bit of the Bible, what does that mean and what does that look like? As Jacob talked earlier, it means being just, being fair, and what that actually means. It means being compassionate and being loving on the other side of that coin. It means being willing to have the courage to say and to do difficult things because that's what Jesus did. He said and he did difficult things because that was the plan of the Father. It means, it means being willing to sacrifice your time and your life to know who he is. Because how am I ever going to get to the point that I want to be where he is? And want to be like him. And I want to do what he does. If I don't know who he is. I don't know where he is. And I don't know what he did. And what he does today. God calls us to that. God calls us to be like him. A little bit shorter. I think that I probably had some other things that I was going to say. But they're in there somewhere. And um, some of y'all might think of how to figure that. Getting that thing out of there. But that's what you get today. And I appreciate your time this morning. Or this afternoon. Just a moment, Brother Charlie Brown, who's an elder down in back at Natalia. Another person that I met 13 or 14 years ago for the first time at Focal Point and has become a very dear friend and look forward to seeing him and Jim every year that they come back to Focal Point. And last year was, I moved out here in, in uh, July of 2019 and I thought I'll get closer to, to Charlie and to to Jim, and then pandemic hit, and so it's the first time I've seen him in two years. Joseph, I appreciate your energy. You know, if you weren't prepared before you got here, that would have scared you to death that that computer didn't work. Oh, it did. Don't worry. No. <laughs> but you handled that very well. You handled that like Peter would have handled the end of his life. When we have the, we read the book of first and second books of first and second Peter and we find out he eventually became like the Lord. But he had all those failures to begin with. And so I relate to Peter a whole lot in his scriptures and I know a lot of other people do as well. Um, but I appreciate your energy. I appreciate your your Enthusiasm with which you delivered that, and I know that uh, com computers don't always work. And uh, but when you open the book and you know the scriptures, we don't really need those computers a whole, as much as we thought we did. And so, if you weren't in your mind and in your heart, you wouldn't have been able to preach like you did. We appreciate you, appreciate your study you put into that, and reminding us of of having a life that's centered in being where Christ is and being like Him. That's what life's all about. In just a moment, Brother Charlie is going to lead us in prayer. We'll be dismissed.
we'll come back again this evening, Lord wills, at 7 o'clock for singing here in the auditorium. And then at 7.30, uh, Mike Bestel will speak uh, the last lesson of this day. We sure are glad you're here. I know I'll say this because Wayne's not in here, and I can say this because I'm his dad. But I know he was afraid that not having lunch here, some people might get get sort of tired and not come back after lunch. I came back after going to McCarty and setting this back up for the teams again tonight. I had to park almost out in the rough. So we appreciate your being here, and we really appreciate you coming back after lunch and making the day very special for us. Well, Charlie, if you lead us in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Would you pray with me? Dear God, our Father in heaven, how great thou art. Thank you so much for the things you've done for mankind, especially that of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love and your forgiveness and that sacrifice that gave us that hope of eternal life. We're so thankful for these spiritual things. Father, we're thankful of these men that are putting these lessons together, such as Joseph and, and, and Wayne and, and David for working on this. And thank you for this congregation that, that, that puts this on every year, Father. And, and uh, we thank you for the knowledge that we gain and for the spiritual strength that we gain. And we're so thankful for those men that put that effort together. We thank you, Father, for our congregation our home congregations, and for those people that encourage us day by day. We thank you for those people that minister to us, uh, preach your word to us and teach us, and we thank you so much for all of these things. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness, and we'd ask that you would forgive us at this time. Continue to be with this focal point that, that we continue to learn. Be with each and every teacher as they teach, that they teach only those things would be in accordance to thy will. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.